0: Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Kim and Tyler Malik, owners of Salt and Straw Ice Cream. What is your relationship to start? Because I'm assuming people probably think you're married all the time.
1: <laughs> we have been asked that um, in the state of Oregon, it's illegal to marry your cousin, so we are not married. <laughs> you're awkward. You're really awkward. <laughs> That's the only reason why you're not married. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, Tyler's gonna kill me later. Um, yes, we are cousins.
0: Salt and Straw started in Portland, Oregon, but there are now scoop shops in Oregon, Washington, California, including one in Disneyland. And in Miami, Salt & Straw is famous for their unexpected flavors like pear and blue cheese, bone marrow with bourbon-smoked cherries, and mint and sea urchin meringue. We have done several episodes on ice cream. Turns out it's a pretty popular last meal. Ben and Jerry have been on the show. On the Isaac Mizrahi episode, we learned why chocolate chunks in ice cream don't freeze into rock hard chunks that'll break your teeth. And on Darcy Carden's episode, we learned the history of Rocky Road. But we've never explored the history of ice cream. Where did it come from? And why did chocolate and vanilla become the go-to flavors? Food historian, Sarah Lohman, will fill us in. I chat with the owner of a very special New York restaurant that only hires grandmothers from all around the world to do the cooking. All of that coming up later in the show. But first, my conversation with Kim and Tyler Malik. Salt and Straw opened in Portland in 2011, but before this project, Neither Kim or Tyler had ever made ice cream. Kim was an early Starbucks employee, starting as a barista when there were only 30 stores and leaving when there were 3,000, having worked her way up to the marketing department. Her last job was with Red, Bono's nonprofit. Tyler was a recent college grad.
1: I had been carrying around this dream of opening an ice cream shop in Portland since the mid-90s. I'll never forget, I saw on Facebook that Tyler was going to go to culinary school, and I said, oh, if you want to go, we have a great school in Portland, you can live in my basement. And during that conversation, he's like, well, what are you up to? And I told him about this journey I was on, and he said, well, I want to help you. I think he got an ice cream maker from the Goodwill and started testing out recipes and sending them to me and I was like, Tyler, I think I need to hire someone who knows how to make ice cream. That's the thing. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just a hunch I have. <laughs> and so he finally said, I'll move down there. I'll just run errands. I just want to help you. And um, when you know it, he turned out to be pretty dang good at uh, making ice cream.
2: It was interesting because I, I have my degree in Chinese and I, I was off doing some pretty cool things internationally and I, I realized pretty quickly that being home and cooking for my family was really important. This superpower that that cooking has um, to bring people together, you know, through really hard times, which at the time my family was going through, my stepdad um, passed away from cancer right around then. And being able to cook and just have everyone come together is one of the coolest things I, I had ever done in my life to that point. And I, I decided that was more important than anything else I could do. And so, yeah, I went to culinary school. You
0: had only made ice cream once, is that right, at culinary school, when you proposed that you be the ice cream maker?
2: Yeah, well, I went to a savory cooking school. So we had a short pastry class, and I made um, a Cheetos ice cream. My teacher, it was so funny, she, like, tasted it, and she's like, this reminds me of something. And I was like, oh, that's great. It's like bringing back memories. That's a really... She's like, no, it reminds me of like sitting in long car rides with my dog puking in the back. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And needless to say, I've never made Cheetos ice cream ever since then.
0: I have to say, I would have done the same. I made Mm -hmm. macaroni and cheese ice cream after Van Leeuwen came out with it. And we couldn't get any because it sold out right away. So my friends and I, we all made it. So I support your journey. We thought it was fine, not gross, but not
2: craveable. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, mine was gross.
0: But Tyler quickly learned to make really good ice cream. And from the start, he collaborated with other Portland makers.
2: If I wanted to make a beer ice cream, I actually got to go and like hang out and make beer for a week. And then by the end of the week, we were practicing how to brew that same beer with the same malts and the same hops, the same ingredients in cream instead of water. Or if we wanted to make a meat ice cream, we just so happen to have Olympia Provisions, which is one of the, you know, the first, you know, at USDA certified charcuteries in the uh, country. We're mm-hmm. using our cream and sugar to talk about the city in a really unique way.
0: But before they had a store, they had an ice cream cart.
1: We were scooping ice cream for people. It was the first time that we actually served ice cream. And wouldn't you know it, it was during the days that they were filming Portlandia here in Portland. And so who walks up to sample our ice cream but Fred and Carrie?
0: (laughs) She's referring to Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein, stars of Portlandia.
2: I had no idea. I'm so embarrassed. You didn't know who they were. I was was just treating them like normal people. I was like... You want to try ice cream?
1: (laughs) And then it was so sweet because they walked away and I'm like, Tyler, do you know who that was? And then a few minutes later, they came back and they were trying to be so encouraging. They're like, this is really good, you guys. You're doing a good job. You've got a chance. You should keep going. And they were so (laughs) nice. It was really fun.
0: That shows the first thing I thought of when you said that you had this dream since the 90s because you know, isn't there slogan like the, the dream of the 90s is alive in, in Portlandia and that's your dream. Your ice cream dream is alive.
1: I've never thought of that before. You're exactly right. See, it all comes full circle. Uh-huh.
0: They were still selling ice cream from a cart when a visit from the press changed their trajectory.
1: So a reporter from the Wall Street Journal, she stopped by and sampled our ice cream. And a few weeks later, we got a call from her saying... Well, I'm going to write a story about salt and straw ice cream. My editor will only let me write the story if you'll promise us that you have national distribution. And I can remember being on my cell phone talking to her. No exaggeration. And I told her this on the phone. Tyler just pulled up in his blue Subaru with a cooler strapped to the top with our ice cream in it. That was our delivery service. And I said, what in the world do you mean national delivery? And I think she said the words mail order. Can't you just have a start a mail order business? And I was like, well, I'm sure we can. I don't, sure. And she said, okay, you have two weeks because the story's going to break in two weeks. I think the Alberta Arts District um, like street fair was that night and I was sitting on the, on the stairs googling how do you start you know a shipping business and this woman walked by who no exaggeration she did it for a living and so she sat down on the stairs she's like what are you trying to do and she helped me get our yahoo store there was the yahoo store back then we got that going and we did it the story ran and we got all these orders we shipped them out and Little did we know you cannot ship them on pellets of dry ice, the little tiny pellets, because the ice cream will melt. So we shipped all these ice cream boxes out, and they all melted. (laughs) Oh, no. We had to reship them all. Um, But... We still ship all over the country to this day. And that was the the impetus and the story ran. And she said our vanilla ice cream was the new standard to beat. So it was pretty awesome. And we were so grateful. But, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're just whatever, you know, you'll do it. We'll figure it out. So
2: then the next week we got really lucky. Portland Monthly Mm -hmm. reached out and they were like, we want to write about you. You made this one melon prosciutto ice cream. We need pictures tomorrow. And our kitchen was closed. We were working at a third-party kitchen. And I don't have an ice cream maker. And you need it for pictures tomorrow. I broke into Kim's garage. I think I had to, like, shimmy through your back door. She had an old hand crank machine we were going to use for display, right? It
1: was an antique that I bought at an antique (laughs) store. It was not...
2: Um, So I, like rewired it so that it would work. And I handmade melon and prosciutto ice cream at like midnight that night Uh. so that they could take pictures the next morning. There was like four weeks there that were just like, everything was going beautifully wrong. (laughs) It's so fun. I mean, in, in retrospect, it was so fun and so hard starting a company. Yeah
0: but that was not the last late night scramble. And it seems Tyler didn't exactly learn his lesson after the Cheetos ice cream incident. Can you tell the story about the crab roll ice cream that you made once?
2: Yeah, crab roll Neapolitan. I had high hopes for that one. We talked about Cheetos ice cream. That's way down the list of worst ice creams I've ever made Crab roll Neapolitan is definitely on the top. Here in Portland, there was a food festival, and it was called the Sandwich Invitational. So we had to make an ice cream sandwich that could beat. You know, Duff Goldman was there, so I was up against him. And he was for- the
0: last guest on my show. Actually. Oh no way! And it's funny you say that because he's from Sandwich, Massachusetts. So yeah. this is all coming together. Well,
2: I beat him, so <laughs> don't tell him I said that. <laughs>
0: guess that crab roll wasn't that bad. No, 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 no,
2: no. It was actually. So the story goes on. We were going to make this crab roll ice cream because I was like, oh, we could work with the Oregon Crab Commission. And we, we worked for four months on this <laughs> recipe. And literally, we tested out maybe 30 different crab flavored ice creams. And I was going to, you know, crab meat with crab shells. with. I, I've t- we tested everything. And it turns out crab ice cream is a really, really bad idea. Like really bad. Don't try it. (laughs) Cause I had this dream of like a crab bisque ice cream and it was going to be a Neapolitan. So crab bisque next to, you know, a spritz of lemon sorbet and like an old bay ice cream. It sounds kind of good when, when you say it like that, but it was not. So I called the event the night before and I was like, I have to change my dish I was in the kitchen for the entire night until like 5 a.m. We were remade everything. We took all of the ingredients that we had for like cream and bread and butter and all this. And we made a peanut butter and jelly ice cream sandwich which sounds really easy, boring, right? But we made like homemade peanut butter, Cap'n Crunch and some, you know, there's, there's a couple like tricks that we pulled out of our hat that night. <laughs> and so the opposite of crab roll ice cream, and that's what we won with. Um, and it became kind of an iconic flavor combination, that salt and straw is peanut butter and jelly. But I like talking about it because it's, I think it was one of those opportunities to say like, we failed. And that's fine. We learned a lot. A couple of the recipes we wrote as we were trying to figure out crab ice cream have gone on and became foundational recipes for the rest of our history of salt and straw. The base to the Old Bay ice cream, for example, we've used that base, that foundation recipe for 40 different flavors since then. There's this way of like capturing what you learned, admitting defeat and then pivoting really quickly.
1: The kind of the kicker to the whole story is that the woman Tyler was working with was with salt and straw since the really early days. Her name's Kat. None of us knew she was pregnant at the time, so they're making these crab ice creams. She admitted later she would sneak out to her car and, like, do some deep breathing and gagging. (laughs) How did you make the
0: decision to make more interesting flavors to not just do vanilla and chocolate?
1: I remember, like, he sent me a foie gras flavor and a bone marrow flavor. I mean, this was before we even were working together. It made me a little nervous, which I thought was good.
2: We've never made anything to be weird. My mission, from, like, a flavor creation perspective, was just to talk about the amazing things that were happening in the food industry. That's what gets me out of bed every day, to tell these stories. And my medium is ice cream, that became my passion. I remember the first year I went to this food competition and Greg and Gabby Denton from Ox, I don't know if you've been to their restaurant here in Portland, for the food competition they won and they did a foie gras marshmallow s'mores. Oh wow. um, Yeah, it literally broke me. I was like, how is that even possible? <laughs> and so we just started hanging out. And I was like, can you teach me how to make that into ice cream? And so we did. And it wasn't to be weird. It was just like, I was like, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Let's make this into an ice cream. That's just one of the kind of two, three hundred flavors that we made in the first year hmm. because of just this inherent inspiration that, um, that the city brought to us. Time for a break. But when we
0: come back, Kim and Tyler reveal their last meals. And we learn what food their grandma always had out on the coffee table. For the record, it was not Werther's Originals. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Poulsbo or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm to table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a black owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest And there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash your last meal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Okay, let's talk about your last meals. Kim, why don't you go first? What would your last meal be?
1: You know, we did coordinate on this. I am going to really buck the trend. My last meal, I would pick a breakfast. And um, it's sort of a homage to our grandmother's, her Swedish pancakes. But I would add a really spicy Bloody Mary on the side. Um, But it just reminds me like our whole, we have, our parents have six brothers and sisters and I think we have like 15 cousins and we would all sleep in the same house growing up and she would make everybody Swedish pancakes in the morning. And so for me, it's that memory of our entire family being together for days on end. And that memory is really important to me and I love it. What
0: do you like to roll up in your pancakes?
2: There's actually like controversy. Grandma put maple syrup, she rolled them up and put maple syrup on, that's it. But a little cottage cheese or sour cream with blueberries Mm, that's my favorite. But she would roll over if she heard that.
1: <laughs> Purist. I mean, Rachel, you, you have to understand, too, that this was in Conrad, Montana. Yeah, I it's do. too fancy. Yeah.
2: It's not a blance.
0: What did she think of the ice creams you're making if she's like, ugh, too fancy?
2: I think she was proud.
0: She loved it. Yeah, yeah.
2: she yeah. loved it. But she stuck with mostly oh, well, the my... vanilla. I'm not going to lie mm-hmm.
0: Um, Okay, so let's go back to the Bloody Mary. What do you like inside of yours? Because I feel like the drink is almost secondary to the whole salad that's flying out of that glass.
1: Yeah, so um, I like it pretty savory and spicy. I'm not looking for the full, like, steak kebab stuck into my <laughs> Bloody Mary, but I will take, you know, the traditional, uh, well-selected uh, pickled vegetables. And up to you, just a little surprise. Um, but really just the, the drink itself. And again, I guess to a page from my grandma keeping it true and, and mm, pure.
2: With extra Worcestershire.
0: That's
1: what I'm talking about, yeah.
0: And Tyler, what would your last
2: meal be? I had to pull one from grandma as well. We always ate dumplings and sauerkraut. Like this is Mm. relatively uncommon. Not many people know about this, but they're boiled dumplings. And so they're really, really fluffy on the inside, bready, you know, on the inside, but then like kind of gooey on the outside, um, maybe like a really giant gnocchi kind of. Every time I cook it, it's really controversial. It takes a bit to get past that sticky icky on the outside, and then you slather it in Sauerkraut, kind of toasted some spices and then um, sauteed the sauerkraut in those spices and poured it over and served it with a um, pork roast. And so that was our kind of fancy, that was like our holiday dinner when, whenever we visited. And I love it so much. The dumplings are just, like, I, I think it's an acquired taste in many ways or acquired texture. But it, I've acquired that and I, I appreciate it.
0: What's the background on those? Is it Polish or German or?
2: I think Polish, yeah.
1: I think there were ties to our grandpa's family came from um, the, what is now the Czech Republic. I
0: feel like the definition of a dumpling has always been dough with something inside of it. But then there's this whole other category of dumpling, you know, kind of, that it's more of like a drop dumpling. Yeah. It's interesting that they have the same name because they seem different.
2: No, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like um, more of like a matzo ball soup kind of dumpling if that makes sense
0: that's what I was thinking yeah Yeah. did you figure out how to make it or did she share the recipe
2: I have not made it perfect yet and it's really Mm -hmm. hard because you know what I think I remember being like eight years old and seeing a box of bisquick in her cabinet and she never used it I but I'm pretty sure she was using it for just her dumplings that was the only time she ever brought it out have you tried that yet I'm a little scared to buy Bisquick on my own. <laughs> no, I don't, it feels like sacrilege to bring in Bisquick or to like buy Bisquick. I'd have to like wear a disguise so no one saw me.
0: That's what I was going to say. Are you afraid someone's going to see you buying it? Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. But that might be the secret. You might nail it if you put the Bisquick in.
2: I know. I think it is. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I'm pretty sure.
1: Now, Tyler, I'm gonna. I'll send it to you online so no one can even trace it back (laughs) to you. The
2: the Amazon driver is gonna know.
0: (laughs) You know, you rent a shed or something that you only have your secret embarrassing ingredients delivered to, so no one knows. Like a PO box or something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What else would go into that shed, Tyler? Come on. (gasps) Yeah, what else would go in that shed? American cheese.
2: Oh no, we have American cheese proudly displayed in our fridge. Yeah, me too. Uh, I love Craft singles all day. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Just a shed full of biscuits. <laughs> it's gonna be great.
2: Bisque and dead bodies. <laughs>
0: For her last meal, Kim Malik wants her grandma's Swedish pancakes with a spicy Bloody Mary. And Tyler Malik wants grandma's dumplings in sauerkraut. Grandma Malik's food is a big inspiration for Tyler and Kim.
2: I mean, one of the first flavors we ever created, I think, meant a lot to Kim and I our almond brittle with salted ganache. Really, the first thing I ever cooked was almond brittle with yeah. our grandma. It meant a lot to us. And I remember, actually, when we were starting, I was working on the recipe, and I couldn't get the almond brittle just right, so I called Grandma Malik, and I was like, Grandma, can you tell me the recipe? And (laughs) she immediately said, no. (laughs) I was like, what?
1: Why not? Grandma. You're to make it yourself. Figure it out.
2: (laughs) And so I had to figure it out from scratch, which is so frustrating. And I think since then I've learned, like, I don't think she has any of her recipes (laughs) written down. So I'm pretty sure she was secretly just, like, covering her tracks. (laughs) I remember, like, two years later, I was like, Grandma, this is the most popular flavor we've ever made. It's so good. People want to take pictures Mm -hmm. with you. You're so famous because of this ice cream. And she looked at me. And deadpan, she was like, well, you didn't double that recipe, did you? Because it's not made to be doubled. <laughs> <laughs> I was
0: like, "Oh my god." Well, you wouldn't know that because she wouldn't yeah. share her secrets. How would you have known? <laughs> exactly.
2: This has been one of my life missions outside of making ice cream is figuring out how to track down all of grandma's recipes. And like I said, I, she never wrote any of them down. Like she always made crumb caca. Have you seen crumb caca? Um, I got her iron. It's almost like a waffle cone, but it's made into a cookie for the holidays. Her Swedish meatballs. All these recipes I've been trying to hunt down and recreate them from memory. And this is one of my life passions is to figure out how to write down all of her recipes. One day we're going to get there.
0: Kim, talk about what she always kept on her coffee table.
1: Oh, on her coffee table, I remember there being always...
2: Jelly bellies. Jelly
1: bellies, always jelly bellies. And then the kicker was... Cheese Whiz with Ritz crackers, Tyler. Um, Do you remember that? Always, always a can of Cheese Whiz. And to this day, I can't pass it up without uh, loading up my Ritz cracker and just kicking back and enjoying it. That could go in the shed, too, Tyler. Come on.
2: Uh, Well, that and uh, iced white Franzia.
1: Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when I put a an ice cube in my uh, white wine for somebody, I say, "Do you want it Grandma Malik style? You know, a little <laughs> ice cube in your fran- box Franzia white wine with your uh, your ritz <laughs> cracker <laughs> and, a, and a yeah, squeeze a squeeze a cheese there. It's it's not a bad life, you guys. Come on." <laughs>
0: my mom would only buy that cheese whiz when we went camping and i remember so vividly i would put the crackers also ritz down my leg and then write my name all the letters with the cheese whiz can on the crackers
1: (laughs) that is awesome now there is a tip to all those parents out there trying to teach their kids to spell you get yourself a can of cheese whiz and you spell it on your arm and you can eat it when you're done so fun
0: There are so many sweet stories of folks growing up with their grandmother's cooking, learning to cook or bake at grandma's apron strings. But I can't relate to any of them. My grandma Sue was not a cook. When my sister and I would spend the night at her place, she would make us a generic box of mac and cheese that we ate on TV trays while watching The Golden Girls and 227. And because she was a classic grandma, if we didn't finish our bowl, she'd say, you're not going to eat that. I'm sure the starving children in Africa would be happy to eat your macaroni and cheese. I remember Grandma Sue eating tuna salad. She ate rice cakes slathered in peanut butter. And her fridge was very sparsely populated. There was always non-fat milk. There was off-brand, individually plastic-wrapped cheese slices. And somehow, even the inside of her refrigerator smelled like mothballs. She liked to take her fork and mix all of the components on her plate together before taking a bite. And when I was a kid, I thought this was pretty gross. But she'd say, what does it matter? It all goes to the same place. Grandma Sue was a working single mother in the 50s and 60s in New York City. She was raising two little girls on one salary. She didn't have the time or interest to cook. And if you're like me and we're deprived of the stereotypical grandma in an apron experience, there is a place for us culinary orphans. Teca Maria on Staten Island, the kitchen is run by grandmothers.
3: Being at my grandmother's house uh, was a very comforting time for me.
0: That's Jody Scaravella. He opened the restaurant 16 years ago.
3: I was trying to recreate that because I lost all of those matriarchs in my life. I think I was really just trying to comfort myself. And I was grieving heavily from the loss of my uh, mother. I think when you lose your mother... In that moment, I really felt orphaned. The feeling was profound. I was depressed, and I think that's what I was trying to do. I was just trying to recreate everything that I lost.
0: Jody had never owned a restaurant before. He'd never even worked in a restaurant before. But he saw a storefront for rent, and on a complete whim, he used the small inheritance he got from his mother to open Enoteca Maria. Maria was his mother's name.
3: I put an ad in the Italian-American newspaper, I didn't have the restaurant built out, so I had them come to my home. So we had all these ladies with these plates of food. They brought their husbands, they brought their kids, they brought their neighbors. I had a house full of people uh, running around. and They wanted me to taste their food. You know, it was like a Fellini movie. Is
0: that how you chose who you were going to hire? You were tasting their food?
3: I hired everybody. and They were all good. So whoever wanted to work, I hired. You know, some of the ladies that showed up were grandmothers. So, of course, in that moment, the little light went off in my head. And I says, oh, these are definitely the cream of the crop, the best of the group. Yeah, and that's how it started.
0: The restaurant started with a rotating cast of Italian nonas. But in 2016, Jody welcomed a Pakistani woman guest chef. And Nona's of the World was born. The permanent menu always has Italian and Japanese food. There's both an Italian and Japanese cook on staff. But every single night features a guest Nona from a different country.
3: We're only open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So Friday, we have a woman from Armenia. On Saturday, we have Puerto Rico. And on Sunday, we have Azerbaijan. We have Shanghai. And we have uh, Hong Kong a woman from Taiwan that comes in once a year, the Philippines and Argentina, Uzbekistan and Turkey, and I mean, the list just goes on and on. Egypt, the way it works, the qualifications to be an owner, you don't have to procreate. I think that would be weird mm-hmm. if the only way you could cook at the restaurant is if you you know, had babies. So that makes no sense. So we had to set an age bar, you have to be at least 50 and uh, and be a good cook. And you have to be born in the country that you're representing. Yeah, and we would love, if you have any listeners that would like to, to represent, we would love to uh, to host them.
0: Well, that sounds like pretty much the same things you have to do to be president. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the oldest Nona that you've had cooking at the restaurant?
3: Oh, we had a, a woman from Germany, uh, Nancy Hoffman, She's either 94 or 96.
0: What is grandma food like compared to what you normally get in a restaurant?
3: Well, it's, it's not any of that three little pieces of food, part of a decoration type of a meal. You know, it's home cooking where like your mother or your grandmother is in the kitchen and, you know, she plops the food on the plate and uh, it's good. It's, you know, it's home cooking. Basically, what we're doing is we're just sharing culture.
0: What was your relationship like with your grandmother and cooking and food? Oh, well, my
3: grandmother was great. You know, we used to go to my grandmother's every Sunday. And yeah, she was the sweetest woman on the planet. And she was a great cook. The irony of it all is I was a very picky kid. So was my grandfather. So while everybody else was feasting on, you know, lasagna and cannellini and, you know, manicotti and all these wonderful, wonderful dishes. And she was like such a great cook. My grandfather and I would have a dish of ziti with a little red sauce, and, you, know, you know, because she was from Southern Italy it had a couple of peas in it. And that was what we ate. But I mean, everybody else was, you know, getting the royal treatment.
0: That's so funny. I know. Can you imagine being so picky? You don't like lasagna. You don't want melty cheese all over your meal.
3: Oh yeah, rub, rub it in, rub it in. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well now, I mean, you've made up for it though, right? Because now you can eat grandma food all the time.
3: I was making up for lost time. Yeah. I like everything now. I eat everything, uh, I eat, you know, things that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't eat. You know, we, uh, as part of our uh, menu, in remembrance of my grandmother, we have a dish on the menu, it's called caputzel. And so caputzel is the sheep's head. So my grandmother used to make that for my grandfather. My grandfather loved it. So basically, you, you have this head sitting in the middle of the table... And, you know, as a young lad, of course, I was traumatized by this, but uh, we have it on the menu today in remembrance of of my grandmother.
0: Okay, I'm looking at the menu now. Right now, you can order buglam. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. An Azerbaijani traditional lamb stew. Uh, There's a miso grilled salmon on the menu and lasagna della nona. It's the world on a table.
3: It's the only political thing I'm going to say, that we've come off a real divisive time in our history. And I think that really uh, reinforced what we're doing here. Because uh, this country is basically made up of immigrants. We're all immigrants. Everybody that's here is from somewhere else. Where Where's your family from?
0: Um, well, my dad was born in Romania, grew up in Israel, and then moved here. And my mom's grandparents are from Russia.
3: Everybody who, who's here is from someplace else. And New York in particular, it's a meeting place for cultures. You know, it's really diverse and it's colorful and it's beautiful and it's it's magic.
0: All right, time for a quick break, but when we come back, the ice cream we know and love in the United States today, we owe much of it to enslaved black Americans. Just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. There are some foods that are so ubiquitous, such a concrete part of our culture, that it's hard to imagine there was a time that they didn't exist. Can you imagine a world without ice cream? But in order to have ice cream, you need a freezer or at least a
4: lot of ice. What is the history of ice cream? Oh, my God. How long? How many minutes of an answer do you want on that? 300. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) well, I have another meeting at 10. So
0: (laughs) um... that's Sarah Lohman food historian and author of Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine.
4: So the history of ice cream really begins with ice and snow in ancient Japan, China, and in particularly Persia, different sort of desserts were made by gathering snow from mountains. Um, and Persia is really important in this because they are the civilization that re- fully refined sugar. So a lot of the origins of our worldwide sweets come from Persian culture. Uh, In the 16th century in Europe, alchemists figure out how to lower the freezing point of water. If you add salt or saltpeter to ice, you create a super cold slurry that can be then used to freeze other things it comes in contact with. So it was kind of those two origin points came together and we made ice cream. Generally, it seems like traditional ice cream started in Italy, and then as it moved sort of further north through Europe, we began freezing like custard-based things, like almost like a creme brulee. Instead of baking that, people would freeze that base. The creamy custard-based ice cream
0: we know today comes from Europe, and Sarah says it most likely came to America via
4: President Thomas Jefferson who was an ambassador in France, and took his enslaved cook, James Hemings with him to get trained as a professional chef and a pastry chef. James Hemings was the first professionally trained chef in America. And so he brought a lot of those French styles of technique back to America at Monticello. They were then mimicked in the White House, mimicked by fashionable society. So it seems really likely that our earliest forms of ice cream were, were based on European ones. And actually, I should note, too, that when Jefferson came back from France, when he after he was done being the ambassador, he brought back with him a sorbetier, which is the European tool that was used for freezing ice cream. She says Black Americans are responsible for the ice cream we know today. In America in the 18th and 19th centuries, it was the enslaved who were becoming these very skilled pastry chefs and were making the ice cream. If someone was able to escape or buy their freedom or was freed after the war, these really skilled chefs moved into places like Philadelphia and opened up catering businesses. So a lot of the American innovations, like American-style ice cream, which is creamy without the eggs, and the ice cream scoop with the little thing that you boop to release the ice cream, those were all invented by Black inventors who came from this like legacy of these skilled Southern chefs who moved North and just took over the ice cream industry because they were the ones that knew how to make it. And so a lot of Black men and women not only made lives for themselves, but became extremely successful, wealthy and respected because of the culinary skills uh, that they were able to carry with them north. So a lot of what we know about ice cream today has to do from some really incredible Black Americans. So what were some of the popular flavors in the States, you know, in the early days of ice cream? So vanilla was a popular flavor. The recipe that we have uh, in Jefferson's recipe collection is for vanilla ice cream. Uh, vanilla is from the Americas it's from basically uh, modern day Mexico it was considered a very luxurious flavor other than that anything that was a drink so like chocolate we think of that as a solid but for most of chocolate's history up until the middle of the 19th century it was a drink um tea coffee of course um lemon was a pretty popular flavor perfume flavors like musk uh violet orange flower water rose water and then there was a popular flavor called ambergris. So ambergris is an impaction that occurs in the bowels of a very small percentage of male sperm whales. And it happens when squid beets, which are indigestible, get caught in the bowels and they sort of secrete this mucus and there's fecal matter. And then it floats around in the ocean and cures in the salt in the sun. And then it washes up on beaches and people collect it to this very day. It's still used in a lot of the perfume industry worldwide. And historically, the things that we wanted to eat and the way that we wanted to smell, there was more of a crossover. So something like ambergris, which is, you know, considered a perfume, also appears in the in the earliest ice cream recipe we have from the late 17th century, a handwritten recipe by Lady Anne Fanshawe. What does ambergris taste like? It definitely has these like very fecal notes but you can get like grassy or barnyard or hay-like notes all the way to, I think once I called it old man, bad breath. It's sort of bacterial as well, but it can also be sort of fresh and forest floor-like. What I had read was armpit. Yeah, you can get that too. Again, it's coming (laughs) from a creature's intestines. So there's a bacterial situation. I was prepared to
0: challenge Tyler to make an ambergris flavored ice cream, but Sarah says it's illegal in the U.S., you know, in places like Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., New York, you have all of these local ice creameries that have popped up and they do really unique flavors. I'm wondering if that existed in history or is this truly an ice cream revolution?
4: No, Uh, I think ice cream just got boring in the middle, like a lot of American food did in the first half of the 20th century. And finally, we're embracing the really the diversity of America that being said, we just talked about that one of the most popular fl- historical flavors of ice cream came from a sperm whale's uh, intestines. Yeah. So till salt and straw puts ambergris on the menu, like they're not doing anything as wild as what was in the past. But absolutely, like I have made a cinnamon, bay leaf and lemon zest ice cream. It was incredible. Brown bread, like pumpernickel bread ice cream is a popular historical flavor. Um, just really combinations that you really wouldn't think of today as or you would see and think that they were sort of modern and wild. That's what we were originally eating in ice cream, not chocolate and vanilla.
0: There's a really good place in San Francisco. That's an Italian restaurant, but just on the dessert menu, they have maybe the creamiest soft serve I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And they put really, really high quality grassy olive oil on top and oh. sea salt. It Ooh. is so good.
4: Mm. Oh, uh, another uh unusual topping, soy sauce some vanilla ice cream. Oh. Get those like the salty and like deeply savory and sometimes nutty flavors of like a really good soy sauce on top of like a really like sweet cold vanilla ice cream. It's really it's a treat.
0: Ooh, I'm going to try that. So let's go back to some more popular flavors. Um, You touched yeah. on chocolate and vanilla and a little bit of the history. How did those become the go-to flavors? I mean, it's chocolate, vanilla, and often strawberry are just what you expect at every ice cream parlor.
4: Yeah. You know, that's a great question. And I, I am probably going to disappoint you in that I don't have a direct answer to that. I think it speaks to something deeper. I think it speaks to some biological human connection to these flavors. I will say that both of them are very complex flavors. Uh, Vanilla, for instance, has over 200 different smell and flavor and taste components, um, different compounds that give us that whole experience of vanilla. So it's a really, really complex flavor and smell, and we never develop flavor fatigue for vanilla. Um, if you think about other strong flavors, uh, maybe something like cardamom, which I absolutely love, but you can't eat cardamom all day every day. You you need a break, right? You never hear anyone say, "Ooh, I don't like vanilla," so it's not at all understood. But there is some sort of connection on a very deep level with vanilla, and I think that's probably true with chocolate as well. Chocolate has been consumed by humans for. Ooh, uh, like in the range of five to 10,000 years. Chocolate, its native range is also from Central America to like the sort of North of South America. It is invigorating. It has a alkaloid in it that's very similar to caffeine called theobromide. It releases happy chemicals, They're just flavors that we have a connection to. They're working on a different level in our bodies. Yeah, because vanilla I've read is the number one ice cream flavor. It's
0: still the most popular. And then there was an article last year where they did a study and a big study and everyone's favorite scent was vanilla as well. So we really, really, really love
4: that. You know, isn't it funny that vanilla is referred to often as like basic? That's not really the right perception of it. It's not basic, it's widespread. It's deeply beloved. It's common because we love it so much.
0: Tyler's last meal is his grandmother's dumplings in sauerkraut. Have you tried to make a dumplings and sauerkraut ice cream flavor?
2: I should. Okay, okay, I will. Rachel, you'll be the first to taste it, I promise. I'm gonna try it out actually now.
0: I wonder if you caramelized the sauerkraut if it would get a little bit sweeter. Because cabbage gets really sweet when you roast it. I love that like a sauerkraut caramel sauce almost. Uh Uh-huh, okay, on that note of what I just did because I was hesitant to say like, you should make this. Do you get this constantly? Is this a thing that is just your life of people being like, oh, you should make that into an ice cream?
2: Well, yes and no. I think it's kind of fun. Like, and honestly, we get a lot of fun flavors from that perspective, especially people that have grown up with different heritages. People coming in with their life experiences and wanting to share that and like spread that through our ice cream is like, it's one of the coolest things possible. And so we do get a lot of people being like, I want this to be, you should make this an ice cream. And 99% of the time, it's an incredible idea.
1: I remember, Tyler, when we made a rosewater saffron ice cream for the Persian New Year, and there was a little kid who came in to try it and was just told the story, like, I can't believe that this is an ice cream, you know, here in the United States. And I feel like... It meant a lot to him. You know, it kind of felt seen. And I think people bringing their ideas and collaborating with us, it can have a big impact for folks. And it's really, it's really special. I love
0: it. And that was Kim and Tyler Malik's last meal. Go to saltandstraw.com to see if there's a scoop shop near you or have a pint of ice cream shipped right to your couch. Every month they do new themed flavors, and this month is the Seriously Delicious series. So they're doing flavors like peanut butter brownie cereal puffs and cornflake cookies with marionberry jam. Thanks to Jody Scaravella, owner of Enoteca Maria in Staten Island, New York. And Sarah Lohman, food historian and author of Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. You can pre-order her upcoming book. It's called Endangered Eating. America's Vanishing Foods. Find a link to all of my guests in the show notes. This episode was produced by me and mixed by the wonderful Randy Torres, who also has very pretty hair. Theme music by Seattle's prom queen, she has pretty hair too. Your Last Meal is a Slide Down the Dinosaur media production. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or like the show on Spotify. And if you're not already, make sure you're following along on Instagram. Hello, Rachel Bell. You know how to spell it. You've heard me say it before. Follow the bouncing ball. B-E-L-L-E. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal.
3: Can you hear me?
0: Yes, you're yes, very we can hear you, Kim. you're a little louder. I'm a little loud! <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm like, this
0: is usually me screaming. I have some competition today.
1: (laughs) Is this better?
0: Yeah, more sultry is what I'm looking for. Is it a A little more berry white? Is it still really really loud?
1: No, that's good. Okay, we did it.
0: Are you taking like a weed gummy or something? What's that?
1: Olives. Oh, Oh, cute. They serve them on Alaska Airlines and I liked them so much. I order them by the case now. I was going to say it looks like something you'd get on the airplane, so <laughs>
0: accurate. Were you really going to say that? Yes, I was. Yeah. You have to give me the same stories you gave the Today Show, okay?
3: I have to give you the same story. Well, it's always you know what the, the funny thing is? It's always the same story because that's the only story I have.